21 and able to look forward. And I know that, that we've had a little bit of a hiccup having to go virtual, uh, but that's just a, a minor inconvenience as we've uh, entered our 40 days of, of prayer and reflection and as I've given a couple of, of messages on the subject and, and as we jump on this bandwagon together to be of the, on the same mind and purpose as a congregation, as, as a church, I, I want us to, to spend time chewing on some, some questions. Who are we? Who are we? You know, what are we? Where are we going? Is that destination that I talked about last week, is that, is that destination that we see on the horizon, is that the place where we ought to end up? Is, is, is that our dream? Is, you know, we're going to talk about that in just a few moments, but, but how do the, how, the way that we answer these questions or how we answer these questions, of, how do they affect and guide our ministries? Are we just keeping the doors open Last week's message, are we just keeping the doors open? Or what, are, what does our budget look like? And what does our budget tell us about, about what our focus is? Our ministries, our focus, the decisions that we make as a, as a church, as a body. You know, how, how, do, how does all of that play into supporting a vision or a dream that's been given? I, I, I shared last week, it seems like that there are a lot of churches out there that are just trying to keep the doors open. They're just sustaining a status quo. And, and we're going to go a little bit further into that. But, but before we do, let me tell you the story about a man who was looking for a new church. He called up a pastor of another church for help. The man was attending a church where he didn't like the pastor's preaching. He thought his current pastor was a know-it-all. He didn't like the music. Um, and, and, he, and he wanted direction. He wanted to lay out all of these, these things that he was looking for in a church to see if that pastor could help him. So the pastor listened to the man complain about the youth group, the Sunday school, the cleanliness of the buildings until he stopped and asked, Pastor, your church isn't like that, is it? So the pastor replied that he didn't think it was, but he advised the man that his church might not be the church that he was looking for. So he gave him the address of a church in town that, that he ought to visit next Sunday that the pastor thought would be right in line with everything that he was looking for. So the next Sunday morning, uh, the man got the directions and, and he drove and he pulled up into the yard of an old dilapidated church building. There were vines that had grown up the outside walls of the church. There, there were broken windows where I'm sure kids in the area were throwing rocks through them. The, the, uh, the pavement in the parking lot was all cracked up with, with weeds and all growing. And the man thought, surely the, the, that the pastor that I called gave me the wrong, the wrong church to go to. So the next day he, he called the pastor again at his office and he said, you, you gave me the wrong church. That church is shut down. And that, the pastor said, no, no, that's the right place. He says, that's the church that has a membership role filled with people who don't care for the lost, who didn't want to get involved in their community, who had little care for one another, who were uncommitted in serving. In fact, it was a church that only thought about themselves. Perfect for you. Now, there's an important reason behind sitting and asking the questions about ourselves, about who we are, where we're headed, 
what we're emphasizing? Is it in line with Scripture? Is it what God wants us to be doing for such a time as this? There's, there's reasons for, for going through this process. And it gives us an opportunity to review if we've gotten off God's path, if we've gotten off track, if we've gotten into a rut. That's a phrase you've heard me, you've heard me say in, in a lot of ways. Think about a car or truck that, that's gotten themselves in the, stuck in the mud. You know it's not a pretty sight. The wheels are spinning, mud is being slung everywhere. You know, you might even be out there trying to out there push it and, and getting mud slung up on you. It's not a pretty sight. It's not anything that anyone wants to be found in. But then you stop spinning the wheels for just a moment and you stand back and you begin to analyze the situation you found yourself in. You think about, do I have any, any um, friends that have a truck that could come and help pull me out? You start thinking about, well, maybe if I can find some plywood, I could put it up underneath the, the tires to give it something to grip, something to, to, take, to get hold of so, so it, can, it can get out. You sit and you analyze what the situation that you're, you're currently in is and start coming up with a, a plan of action to get you out of that mess. And that's what the vision casting process is meant to accomplish, for us to see where we are, whether in a good place or a challenging place, a not-so-good place, to consider where we need to be and then come up with a plan of action to start m moving ourselves in that direction. So I'm not saying that we're stuck in a rut and need help getting out, but we're, we're going to approach this campaign from that standpoint, as if we are, where we're going to stand back and analyze and look at where we are currently and where we need to be going as a body. And all of that entails coming up with a, a well-thought-out plan of action, a strategy to start getting us in that direction. Stephen Gray, a contributor for LegacyChurch.com, wrote a commentary on what he believed 10 of the deadliest sins of a dying church are. And he based his commentary on a book written by Tom Rainer, one I've read called Essential Church, where Tom Rainer mentions seven of them, and then, and then Stephen Gray adds three onto that list that he recognizes himself. Now, we're going to begin discussing these 10, and uh, my wife kind of tickled me this morning because when she saw the title of the sermon, she said, are you going to have 10 points this morning? And I said, no, <laughs> no, not at all. I'm going to have 20. No, we're going we're gonna to do this over a couple of weeks together, okay, um, and, 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 and kind of pick these apart so that we can start reviewing them and seeing if we see any of these habits at play in our church. Now, Tom Rayner was the former CEO of Lifeway uh, Christian Resources. He and his son run a research group that surveys growing churches as well as dying churches around the world. They go in and they study what they're doing that has a positive impact and effect on the, on the health of the church. And they also take a deep look at what's leading a church to its inevitable closure. And I quoted from uh, Tom Rayner last week. Uh, where, when he said just a couple of years ago, he says between 6,000 and 10,000 churches in the U.S. are dying each year. That means around 100 to 200 churches close this 
or each week. The pace will accelerate unless our congregations make some dramatic changes. Now, that's a lot if you ask me. 100 to 200 churches a week. And what we ought to be asking ourselves is, is why is this happening? And are we heading as First Baptists in that inevitable or sort of direction if we don't do anything to change our course? Now, Tom Rainer's main argument in his book, Essential Church, is that many have left the church, many have walked away from the church because they don't see it as essential in their lives anymore. They don't even see it essential spiritually anymore. And, and I, just, I just can't imagine looking at church in that way as if it's not essential to my life. It's not essential to my spiritual growth. Perhaps you have. Or perhaps you're watching this and you, you, you do have that sort of inclination. That, that you don't see where where your church is benefiting you spiritually. And perhaps we need to do something about that. And, and I think these, these 10 areas that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, they're going to give us a, a keen insight into, into recognizing what cripples any church. In fact, if you, if you look at the title slide um, of of, of the day. You'll even notice there that I even found a picture of a, of a church building with a for sale sign on, on, on the outside. And, and, and I can't imagine seeing something like that take place. And, and, uh, and perhaps you can't either, but, but that's, that's a place we don't want to end up. Amen? That's, the, that's a place where we don't, we don't want to see that in this church's or any church's future. So, so what must we do in order to in order to correct that course. Well, we're going to look at these 10 problem areas. And, and, the, and the first one here that, you see, that you're going to see on your screen is called a doctrinal, a doctrinal drift. Now, Stephen Gray writes, he says, In a desire to reach more people, churches have watered down doctrinal truths, believing that it helps them to be more inviting. So now this is the church that takes it upon themselves to determine what they should or shouldn't be teaching from Scripture, from the Bible, from God's Word. They pick and choose, and they carefully do so. They carefully pick and choose what are our going, what's going to be our, our topics, our, our topic of discussions, what's going, what are we going to emphasize in our, in our messages, in our Bible studies, what, what, are we, what are we going to shy away from? So as not to offend anyone or to run anyone off. In other words, they've exchanged God's word for what is, is called cultural relativism. Where we decide right from wrong instead of submitting to God's word as our authority. In fact, Romans 1.25 spells that out clearly. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. And in so doing, we've raised up a generation of believers who don't really know what they believe or why they believe what they're supposed to believe. In fact, we've done exactly as Romans 1.25 calls out. We've traded the worship of God to worshipping people and what it takes to fill our pews and to fill our churches. 
Now, are we to be people-minded? Absolutely. But not to the point to where we shy away from teaching the full account, the full narrative that's in Scripture. We can't ignore the effects of not teaching sound biblical doctrine and where that might lead us. As the church, it is our responsibility to not only teach sound doctrine, but to do so in a, in a way to where people understand it, people internalize it, and will, where people will eventually verbalize it themselves, where they're not just consumers, but they're participants in the, in the gospel without watering it down. 2 Timothy 4.3, another, another verse that speaks on this. Again, from the Apostle Paul, the time will come when people will not listen to the truth. They will look for teachers who will tell them only what they want to hear. And in, a, in another translation, what their itching ears want to hear. Watering down the truth will cripple any ministry, any church. And when it comes to looking at, at the course that, that our church is on, we need to be honest with how we're handling it, what we're shying away from, what we're consciously, what we're consciously averting and, and not approaching when it comes to Scripture. Because that also means that we will start ignoring sinful issues and sinful practices and, and sinful lifestyles and sinful behavior within the membership. And if we've been more concerned with keeping people here and, and, and filling up our bank account and, and making it look good and, and patting ourselves on the back with, with what's being built, in other words, keeping a status quo, last week's message, if we're more concerned with that and not offending anybody to the extent to where we're going to water down God's truth in order to get people here, then we need to confess that sin and repent of it as a church. Just as King Josiah in 2 Kings 22, it was at a time where, where sin was running rampant throughout Judah. And the priest just happened to be cleaning in the temple when he found a, a long lost scroll. He, he brought it to the king. He brought it to Josiah hey, I just found this scroll. And they opened it up and they read it and it convicted Josiah about the sin that was running rampant throughout uh, Jerusalem. Um, he tore his robe and he had all the Asherah poles throughout Jerusalem uh, destroyed uh, with it, it, that very day. They realized that they weren't living true to the word of God. And when they finally got to consulting scripture appropriately, what they had too long ignored, they put together a plan of action and they got themselves back on track with God again. They were crippled until they got themselves right with God's word again. Any church ignoring and watering down his word will be the same unless they repent. And then ultimately this habit leads us to the next one that cripples the church, our second point, and that's biblical illiteracy. 
Research reveals that most church members don't really know what the Bible teaches, know what they're supposed to believe. George Barna is another researcher like Tom Rainer. He he has the Barna uh, Research Institute. And he's discovered that 35% of church members believe that Jesus was sinless. 34% believe that the Bible is 100% true. 27% agree that that works don't get you to heaven. And 20%, 20% don't believe, or I'm sorry, 20% believe that Satan is real, which means 80% don't. And this is amongst evangelicals. Gary Berg, professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in Illinois says, and this is the quote on our slide, he says, Biblical illiteracy is at a crisis level, not just in our culture, but also in America's churches. Not just, not just through, you know, out in the streets, not just in our communities are people biblically illiterate. And you see that a lot of times when people misquote scripture on the news, on TV. But the illiteracy rate in church is also high. How big of a deal is this? Well, according to the Gospel Coalition website, a church uh, or a survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University found that 48% of Christians believe that if a person is generally good or does enough good things in their life, then they will earn a place in heaven. This is a survey amongst Christians now. A majority of of people who describe themselves as Christians, 52% accept a works-based means of salvation. Amongst Protestant Christians, 44%. And evangelicals, 41%. That's more than a third of those who are involved regularly in church believe in a works-based salvation. 65% 65% of American adults, they, they discover, describe themselves as Christians, and only half of them believe that they will go to heaven after they die. So, 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 you, so you, you profess Christianity, but only 54% of those who profess Christianity believe that they'll go to heaven. How is that possible when you believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ and that his death, burial, and resurrection has has cleansed you of your sin, has pardoned you of the judgment. How is that possible? 33% believe that they will go to heaven slowly based on the confession of sin and embracing Christ as Savior. Another one in five expect that they'll make it because they've embraced universalism, meaning that God will let everyone in. And among those with other views, 15% say they don't know what will happen after they die. 13% said that there is no life after death. 8% expect to be reincarnated. And 2% believe that they will go to hell. You know, when you you start looking at surveys and and research and start looking at the the dynamics or the demographics around you, and, and, you know, that's one thing. But when you start looking at it within your church... It can be eye-opening. They, they write that the survey shows that too many Christians aren't Christians at all. They're not relying on the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're relying on something that's false, something that isn't biblical, 
something that isn't in Scripture. So you see how that first one plays, our first point plays into the second. How is this possible with all the sermons and, and Bible studies and whatnot that the church has offered throughout the years? How is it still possible to have so many biblically illiterate members? Well, even though we live in the, in the midst of an age where you have information at your fingertips, there's one different, there's a difference between having information and internalizing that information. It's one thing to sit and to listen to a sermon. It's another to, to see how, seek how you are to internalize that sermon. The thing is, is no one consumes, no one internalizes anymore. Truth changes from, from day to day. Just watch the news. No one even investigates what is true anymore. They base their reactions or their facts on, on their feelings and how they feel on that day. And even then, tomorrow, they might act the way that they're, con- they're condemning today, but, but there's justification for why I'm acting and responding that way. That person didn't have justification. No one investigates anymore. No one seeks out truth anymore. And we see that at play even within the church. We talk about reading our Bibles. Well, sure, but are we digesting our Bibles? Are we taking it in? Are we allowing it to convict? Are we allowing it to change our lives, our minds? This is what the second point draws out. It's the lack of interest of Christians to know the truth that's in God's word. And sometimes you have to investigate that. You have to study it. You have to hold it up and and to see it hold up. We pick what we feel are the nuggets we want to believe in. We'll take this view from over here and that view from over there. And we'll put it together and we'll try to make sense. And before long, our, our beliefs don't even reflect the word of God anymore. And then the church is crippled. Then the church ha- has no power because we focus more on getting people in the church, how to make church more palatable to the point where we've watered down the truth. No one's going to investigate it. They're just going to take it at face value as what you put out there for them because they're not going to investigate it themselves. And then no one knows why they believe what they believe. The thing is, if we want to be effective in our purpose as a church, in the work of the gospel, if if we're going to call on God to give us vision, we have to have a clear and biblically grounded view of scripture. We have to know why we believe as a church what we believe, what we teach, what we hold on to, what we stand on must come from a heart that's convicted by scripture and not trends and fashions that appeal to that verse in 2 Timothy 4:3 and what our itching ears want to have. No, it's what God's word says needs to be our priority, needs to be our foundation. And so we must set or or have a set of core beliefs, agreed upon beliefs that that as we come together and we spell out what Scripture says that, that, that we are to hold ourselves accountable to, beliefs that we as a congregation hold unswervingly to, 
that we consistently and persistently remind ourselves of. And we're able to share those beliefs clearly when given the opportunity. When asked what is important to this church. And we're able to say in unity, these are our core beliefs. These are our core values. And that's going to be part of, the, of this process going into, going into the future, in the near future. Is, is recognizing and understanding what is it that... That, that we are specifically convicted on when it comes to Scripture. Now, these first two, two habits of that, that cripple a church, they've, they've dealt with God's Word. They've dealt with the way that God's Word is handled um, from, from the onset because there's a progression here because as you accept the truth, as, that, as, you, as you become acquainted with that truth, as that doctrine is established as you become biblically literate, it is eventually to lead us somewhere, and that's to be ambassadors for Christ. That's to be evangelists. That, is, that means we are to be missionaries to those around us. So the third um, habit is called evangelism atrophy. And here's what Stephen Gray writes. He says, most churches in America aspire to have evangelism as a driving force, but they've lost their passion. Ask every one of them, however, and they will proclaim it as a core value. Yet a quick look at their checkbook, annual budget, and programs will tell you the truth. For most churches in America, evangelism is a great thought and desire, but in all actuality, very little in the way of evangelism is done. As I shared last week, mentioned a little while ago, we have more responsibility than to just keep the, the church doors open. Each and every one of us, both personally and corporately as a body, must recognize our role when it comes to the gospel. Your personal role when it comes to fulfilling the Great Commission in living out your faith and sharing your faith to those, to those in your oikos. Now, the oikos is a term you've heard me use from time to time, and, and, and you will continue to hear from me as your pastor. I introduced the concept back in one of our online daily devotionals back in November to those who, who watch that, and I believe in it strongly, and I, I am going to refer back to it often, especially during my time here as your pastor. Our, our oikos, it plays an important role uh, in our lives, recognizing what your oikos is and the, and the role that you play within it. It will have tremendous impact, not just in your life, but also in your church. Yeah, the, the role that you play in your oikos affects the vision of this church in fulfilling its great commission. And so I, I want to take some time to, to talk about what the oikos looks like. And so we're going to switch over to um, my, my whiteboard here, which is a little bit new technology that, that uh, we're going to uh, utilize today that we put together for you. First thing I want you to understand is the word oikos is a Greek word that means community, your sphere of influence. It could be your family, your friends, your co-workers, classmates, your neighbors, your strangers, all the people that make up your community, your oikos. It's a, it's a biblical term. All of these make up your oikos. And I want you to see how we, can, how we see this at play within Scripture. 
of course, we know that, that everything begins and ends with Jesus Christ, right? He is our, our Alpha and Omega. But, but someone, someone had to introduce Jesus to others. And in Scripture, specifically in, like in um, John chapter 1, we have John the Baptist. Uh, I'll, I'll use these little water images just to depict John the Baptist for just a moment. We see that John the Baptist's role was to introduce Jesus, prepare the way for Jesus. He brought a message of repentance, um, salvation by repentance. And he said, prepare your, yourself for Christ, for the coming of the Lord. So we, we know that in uh, John uh, chapter 1, that he had a couple of disciples. John the Baptist did. Um, he had Andrew. Let me, let me fix that. He had Andrew and he had... John, the apostle, apostle John. So Andrew and John were apostles of John the Baptist that he connected to Jesus. In fact, they even left following John the Baptist in order to follow Jesus. And so this was John the Baptist oikos included Andrew and John. Now think about this. Who does John the Baptist immediately bring to Christ? Well, his brother James. So John goes to his brother James and says, let me introduce you to Jesus. It it, it makes sense that, that through John the Baptist, we have the apostle John, then we have his brother James. Andrew, where does he go? Well, scripture tells us in John chapter one that he goes and he finds his brother Peter. And he tells him about Jesus. And so we see the Oikos map here starting to take place. Um, A a little while later, Jesus is going to go and and see this tax collector named Levi. And he's going to tell him, you know, uh, to follow me. And Levi gets up to follow him. He takes Jesus to his house. And he calls all of his, his tax collector co-workers... Let's see, tax man one, tax man two. And he and all and so many others, and he invites them, invites them over to meet Jesus. So he's the connecting link for his co-workers to, to meet Jesus. And if you remember, the Pharisees were outside saying, can you believe this? This, this rabbi is eating with tax collectors and, and, and sinners. A little bit later on, we find in Scripture, in John chapter 4... That, that Jesus goes to a well to get, to get something to, uh, to drink or to rest while his apostles go into town. And he meets a woman at the well here. We know the story of the woman at the well. And, and he talks with her and, and tells her things about her life that she never met Jesus before. How would he know about all these things? And, and she does what? She immediately goes back to town and she starts telling the town people about this person that is able to tell her things about her life. And in fact, in John 4, it even says that we have come to know the Christ, the Messiah, because of your testimony. Again, what we see here, what we see here is the, an oikos map taking, taking shape, taking effect here. Uh, in, in Luke chapter 8, 
we have this, uh, this demoniac. I'll just uh, put like a little exclamation mark here. That's in um, Luke chapter 8, who comes to know Jesus. And Jesus re- removes the demon from him, and, and he falls before Jesus and ple- pledges his, himself to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, no, don't follow me. Go back to your town and tell people what, uh, what God has done on this day. And not only did he go back, but Scripture tells us in Luke chapter 8 that he went back to one, two, three, four, five. He went back to ten towns to tell people about Jesus. So his oikos map included 10 other influences in his life. Again, the way that uh, our role, the role that we play when it comes to um, our oikos is, is so important. Um, God's placed us with the friends and the families and the neighbors and the co-workers and the classmates that he did so that we can also be part of, of, that, of that oikos. And so, so, so this is what I want you to do, what I want you to do at home sometime. I want you to take a map and, or a piece of paper and I want you to draw out these two cells and I want you to put a cross in one connected to you and I want you to write your name in one of these cells. And then I want you to, to, to name one, two, three, four, five people and connect yourself to them. And what I want to challenge you to do is to start praying for these people by name. I want, I want you to, to start praying for them, recognizing that these are people that God has placed in your community, in your oikos, that you may very well be the link in the chain that connects them to Christ, just as that person was that led you to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, that now you are part of the link in that chain. I want you to write down the names, three, four, five people that, that you have a relationship with, that you know does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. People, where you work, where you go to school, where you live. I want you to commit to praying for these names every single day. Praying for them by name. Praying that God would soften their heart. Pray that God might open up your eyes to the events and the circumstances that are taking place in their life. That you might be able to show His loving kindness to them. I want you to pray for the words that God would have you speak into their lives. The words that they need to hear. I want you to pay attention to the objections that those friends of yours may, may have. They may have regarding Christianity. They may have regarding the gospel. They may have during Jesus Christ. And then I want you to make it your personal effort and study to go through Scripture. To read from works like Lee Strobel's A Case for Christ or A Case for Faith. And to, and to start recognizing why are they struggling in these areas. What do I believe? Or where have I been challenged in, the, in these areas? Because if God has placed that person in your oikos, then that person is your mission field. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that you are the ambassador for Jesus Christ and within your oikos. So get to know them and get to know what their objections are and study it for yourself. And pray for that opportunity for God to use you to be able to speak into into your friends, your co-workers, your neighbor, your family, your relative's life. Because that's your oikos. And when we're talking about evangelism atrophy, here, here's, here's what this um, 
this third point is, is actually about. It's about us not recognizing what God has called us personally to. Because if we don't recognize that we are now the ambassadors, then when it comes to church evangelism and church outreach, it's always going to be someone else's job to do it. It's going to be that person's job to be part of that ministry. It's not my responsibility. And, and that's, that's where, we, where we're actually wrong. When we start looking at evangelism as being a corporate event and not something that God has called us personally to within our sphere of influence, within our community, within our oikos. I know there's times when we probably feel it would be better to be like Sally in this, in this peanut strip that's on your screen. Sally says to Linus, she says, I would have made a great evangelist. You, you know that kid who sits behind me at school? I convinced him that my religion is better than his religion. And Linus asks, well, how did you do that? And Lucy answers, I hit him with my lunchbox. And I, and I know that there are, there are times when, when the people that you love and you are praying for and, and, and you're trying to lead to Christ, you know, it'll be better to just hit them over the head with your, with your Bible than it would be to do anything else. But here's what 1 Peter 3.15 says. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So yeah, it's, it's our responsibility individually. Not only to be able to, to live out the Christian life, to submit to Christ, but also to pay attention to what's going on in the lives of the people that make up our oikos. What is it that they believe? What is it that they're struggling with? Why is it that they're refusing faith in Christ? And how might I prepare myself to share with them where God has led me in my faith and in my trust in him. We should always be looking to see how we might help those who are closest to us to enter into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I think if we would become a little bit more convicted concerning our friends and our classmates and our coworkers and our family, grounding ourselves in those things we actually believe in, if we are biblically literate, if we're holding true to doctrine and God's word, then we might begin to see why God's placed us in the oikos we're in for such a time as this. And so these 10 habits that we're making our way through, we're seeing how each one affects the other and how when we deal with one, how it supports the other. I'd like to go on. I want to be able to do all 10, but, but I know that, that, that in order to give each one their due diligence, we'll, we're going to have to uh, spread this out over a couple of weeks. But I hope you see the progression. When we start drifting away from the Word of God, it leads us to know less about our faith. And when we know less about our faith, we don't realize what we've been saved for, which can lead us to believe in things that will take us farther away from what's true. And then we don't even consider the eternal state of those that live around us, that we interact with, or we're unable or incapable of sharing our faith because it's become so watered down, so thin, that we can't even state it 
We don't even know what we believe in ourselves. So certainly you can see how that path can cripple the effectiveness of the church as a whole. And that's why we've entered this vision casting campaign. So that we can come together in unity. We can come together as one body. So that we can be hungry to see God move. And recognize the ways in which he does move. And that comes by our faith in the truth of scripture. That comes from applying the truth of that scripture into our lives. And recognizing who and what we're called to be. And that is ambassadors. So we've been laying this foundation for a couple of weeks. And, and it's, it's really difficult to be able to, to go and, and dive deeper into this when we're not gathering together in small groups or in large groups and being able to have this discussion and be able to write things down and chart things out. But I, I, but I promise it's coming. It's coming. And as we go through these, these 10 crippling habits, I think that, it, that it's going to be really eye-opening for us as we start laying out our core beliefs and values as a church. Because then whenever we start discussing our dreams, our vision, we'll hold those things accountable to our core values, not the other way around. And if they're not in support of what we are convicted in Scripture that we are to stand for as a church, then we know that that dream may not necessarily be for us. So I want you to see, begin seeing how all of this is going to come together. Now, if you've missed the last couple of messages, they're on our live stream site. They're on our Facebook page. You can go and you can watch those. Do your part as a member of the church and, and make certain that you're involved in this process. This, this, the 40 days of prayer and reflection. You can download those off of our Facebook page and website as well. Go through that and let's be united in our prayer prompts and in our devotional thoughts and our scripture thoughts as we go through it every day uh, with our, on our online devotionals. If you can't do the online devotionals, you can still do the paper copy, paper devotional. Um, or you can refer back to that as we were adding to it with our personal thoughts. And I, and I want to just add, if, you, if you've been wondering if First, if First Baptist, is if, if it's a place where God can use you and his kingdom work... If, if you're ready to, uh, to hold membership here and to j join with us as part of the family as we go through this together, let me encourage you to give me a call and let's talk about that. Uh, but even more importantly than that, if you've been struggling with your faith, if, if your belief system is just all over the place because you've been hearing about this and that and the other and none of it is making a unified sense, perhaps we need to get together and talk about that as well. If you're wrestling with the full account of God is revealed in Scripture and how it applies to life in the 21st century. Perhaps that's a discussion that you and I need to have together over the phone, or if, if not together. But also, it, it begins, because he's our Alpha, and it ends in the same. It begins and ends in Jesus Christ. If you've never admitted that you are a sinner, if you've never believed in the personal work of Jesus Christ, and you have not committed yourself to that, let me invite you, where you are, here and now, to take hold of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. That your faith and your trust in the person and work of, of his one and only son cleanses you and washes you away of any sin that has separated you from an eternal relationship with God the Father. 
It has built a bridge in which you may pass over from death to life, from B.C. to A.D., from before Christ to in the year of the Lord. And whenever you stand before God, when you are called to stand before him in the judgment seat, and he looks upon you, he doesn't see the influence that sin, that Satan has had on your life. No, all who have called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he will see Jesus covering you. And you will enter into an eternal relationship with him in heaven that, that no one can take from you. Let, let me encourage you right now that there is a lot of distractions in our world. And there's a lot of false truth, watered-down truth that's out there as well that, believe, that say that you have to believe in this or you have to do this or, or you've got to go by, it, by, by this path. There's only one way. Jesus called it a narrow way. And it's by him and through him. So as we, as we pray here, we're going we're gonna to have a song you know, of devotion in just a moment. Let me encourage you to connect yourself with God the Father through Jesus Christ. Pray with me and, and don't waste another moment before you make that commitment. Father God, as we have gone through these three uh, crippling effects on your church, I pray, Lord, that they are not found here, that they hadn't been found here, and they will never be found here. At the same time, Lord, we recognize the deception of the devil that Satan is alive, that he is working amongst us, and he is deceiving us to accept things and to believe things and to water down your truth that take us away from you. And that, Lord, that we recognize that it's by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works so no man can boast, but it's in the finished work, the death, burial, and resurrection of your one and only Son that our sins may be forgiven. So, Lord, right now in this moment, we admit where we have taken hold of a lie, where our lives are full and filled with sin. We believe and we place our entire faith in Jesus Christ, that he is your son, that he came and he lived a sinless life, that he allowed himself to be taken up on the cross so that his blood might be shed, so that the perfect sacrifice might be given, so that my sins may be atoned for, that he rose again on the third day, revealing that death, Satan, flesh, nothing in all of creation has any hold, any claim on him, and neither does it on those who believe. And we commit ourselves to you, God. Take us and use us for your glory in our oikos, in our community. Give me a hunger for your word like never before, that I won't just read it, but I'll investigate it. I will know it so that I can verbalize it. That my friends, that my neighbors, that those in my sphere may be connected to Christ just as I have. And it's in his name we pray.